Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Molly Kiefer. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. All right, so in late December, Kevin found a TikTok. Oh, wait, I have to pause. There are notes today. Do you guys have notes if you want them? If you don't, okay. They're there if you want them. Okay. Um, oh, and grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you. We're going to do some, some good story, Bible story. So grab that too. But late in December, Kevin found this TikTok. And this TikTok promised that if you do these nine habits, if you incorporate these nine habits into your everyday life, that you will be unrecognizable by May 2024. This was the promise. And then the guy went on to list these nine habits, and they were things like Um, wake up earlier every day. Commit to getting up earlier because you have a longer day. He said, take um, one hour of exercise every day. Yes, one hour, 60 minutes. He said to, um, before you go to bed, to journal, to write down your thoughts, maybe of thoughts that you need to get out of your head or goals for the next day. So every night before you go to bed, do some writing. He suggested that you every day that you take 10 minutes of silence. On top of that, he said, take a 30-minute walk in nature. On top of that, he said, learn a new skill, like um, an online, teach yourself a new skill, like digital, uh, digital marketing or design or coding. And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, this is a part-time, you add this all up, this is a part-time job. You actually need two lives, apparently, to be unrecognizable by May 2024. But... Um, They were great ideas, great ideas. And so Kevin um, passed it on to all the kids and they decided that's what they were going to do for 2024, that they were going to pick actually just three or four of these nine habits and they would follow up with each other. They do check-ins. Why? Because this is what we do in January, right? This is what happens. Like that, that, that ball drops on Times Square and it's like a giant reset button, isn't it? We have a fresh start, a blank slate in front of us with this new calendar year. And it's like the planner with the right dates are written in, open before you like these empty pages. Like, what story? How are you going to fill these? What story are you going to write for your life in the new year? Because it is, it's just this turning of the calendar page is like, okay, all this now lies in front of you. What are you going to do with it? What do you want? And usually what happens is we hit those first three weeks strong, don't we? Like we are in it to win it. And and about this time, it's January 21st, about this time, our resolve begins to weaken a little bit, right? We have missed a day at the gym or we stayed up. We just couldn't resist the late night show and we stayed up a little bit too late to be able to get up early to start our day. Or this always happens to me. I miss my read through the Bible day. I miss one day. And now like the whole thing's out the window. I will never catch up. I'm behind. Now what do I do? Do I have to read double? Do I space it out? Right? So it's like, oh, it's derailed in like a moment. Or we decide that we're going to eat healthy, like no more processed food. 
And then we grocery shop hungry. How many of you guys know this is a recipe for disaster? I have, I have a double whammy. It is shopping hungry and the sale. You combine those two and I am in the danger zone for that entire shopping trip, right? Like I love the, hey, the frozen cookie dough, but it was on sale, you know, and I know better. If I bring it into my house, I will eat it and I will eat all of it because I don't like waste, right? So this is what happens. We just, we have such good intentions, but so often about this time we begin to fall short because it was so much easier on, De on December 27th when we were full of cheese and Nutella, it was so much easier to make these good decisions, right? So here's what I wanna know. We have this, this problem, it's like common humanity that we live in because we want to live well. We do, we want to live worthy lives, right? Like we want to live according to our convictions, our destiny, our identity. We wanna, we wanna live according to like those, those core values of know who I really wanna be, what I, what I really want to do with this life. I want to live like, uh, you know, so, so I, like I spent my time wisely. That if there was like the nanny cam on the wall of my life and so I knew someone was watching the log of my day, how I spent my time, at the end of the day I would be like, I feel so good about all of this. Like go ahead and watch. Watch the film, right? Or like my bank account. I want to live with like just this wise stewardship, a transparency that anyone could take a look at every trans transaction and I could be like stamp of approval, stamp of approval, right? Like I feel good about that. I want to live in a way where I, I represent Jesus well, that I represent him, that I, I, I have a zeal for him and it comes across in my lifestyle as a witness for him, that I'm telling a story of his goodness and what it looks like to be set apart for him and to live in his truth, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? I, I want these things. We want these things, but... But like my hungry shopping trip in that moment of decision, will I turn off the screen and be present to God's love in his voice? Will I say no to just, you know, one more square of chocolate? Will I uh, um, decide to walk in mercy in that heated moment where it would feel so good to say something really mean, right? And I, I know what it is. It's on the tip of my tongue. I, I want to, I want to. Or will I actually in that moment turn to God in prayer instead of the anxious effort of striving in that moment of decision. And Paul knows all about this wrestle that we have. And he says this in Romans seven fifteen. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to, to do, I do not do, but, I, but what I hate, I do. Or maybe you relate better to James when he talks about this, the strong language in James 1 where he talks about temptation and he says, listen, look, at this is what temptation is like. This is strong language. Dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. Wow, we get that. We know what that feels like. So here we want to know, how do we? How do we make good decisions and not just settle for simply good intentions? Am I bothering you? Is it my earring? Oh, every time. Okay, is that going to do it? All right, I thought it was my, like, hair. Okay, it's not. My hair's quiet today. All right, so... How do we live 
making good decisions and not just with good intentions. Well, we're going to turn to the Bible and we're going to look at a man who was an amazing decision maker. And this man's name is Daniel. And so if you have a Bible, grab it. We're going to get into some chunks of his story. And I'm going to tell this story in two parts. We're going to learn how to be a good decision maker from Daniel. And the first part is this. Does Daniel defile? Does Daniel defile? And here's the background to his story. Daniel is living in a really difficult chapter in Israel's history. At this point, um, Israel has been defeated by their enemy, Babylon. The king has come into their capital, Jerusalem, and uh, taken over, destroyed it, and defeated Israelites. And in what he does next is he takes the best and the brightest of the young Israelite men out of their country, and brings them into his palace, where he is now forcing them into his service in the Babylonian Empire to become his, uh, essentially, his wise men and his, the best and brightest of Israel is now serving the enemy country, the enemy king. And the first order of business for this king is to take these young men and to essentially just to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture, to brainwash them, to make them Babylonians through and through. And so, He's going to teach them everything they need to know about the culture, about literature, about history, and uh, um, he's giving them new names, like Babylonian names, so that they, again, just like fit right into his kingdom. And what he does is he decides that he is going to, um, part of the way that he's going to culturize them is by feeding them from his table. And so um, the question is, is Daniel, again, he's just, he's getting this, it's tremendous pressure to conform, to become a Babylonian, essentially, to lose his Jewish identity and heritage, to become like this new culture. And the first challenge comes on the dinner plate. And we're going to start in Daniel 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. Um, and it says this. Oh, wait, actually, you know, I'm going to skip down a little bit. Um, okay. Okay, so he's picking these men, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after they were to enter into the king's service. Okay, so here is Daniel, and they're, he's, they're bringing in this food, and the question in front of them is, Daniel, what are you going to do? There is this food that's been assigned to you. Now, that sounds like a kind of a, um, you know, a pretty mild word that these assigned food. Actually, that word is commanded. The king commanded that they eat this food, and Nebuchadnezzar, this king, is a ruthless leader. There he is not, there's nothing mild and meek about this guy. He is not to be crossed. Okay, so for Daniel and his friends, though, this food that's being served to them, it's more, it's more than just like taste buds. It's more than just, oh, do you prefer curry or um, something else, right? Like, it's not about like, this might be food that I don't really love the spice. It's way more than that. There's two problems with the food. The first thing is this, in Leviticus 11, way back when God is setting up with Israel how they were to live with him, God said, listen, Israelites, you were going to live set apart for me. I'm going to give you some things that you're going to do that, you're gonna, that will kind of make you mine, essentially. And in Leviticus 11, God says, I'm going to set you apart to be holy as I'm holy. And part of that is there are certain foods that you are not to eat. Okay, so it's a part of their law that God gave them to be holy as he is holy, that there was a certain way. 
So that's the first problem. The second problem was that most likely this food that the, the Babylonians ate, that the king ate before they were brought to the king's table, they were actually um, offered to gods. And so eating the food was in line with worshiping other gods, the Babylonian gods. And God has told the Israelites again, you don't worship any other god. He said in Exodus 34, I'm I'm your Lord. I am your God. You don't worship and you don't bow down. You don't serve any other God but me, me and me alone. And so here is Daniel at the table in this foreign land being told you are to eat this food. It's a command. What decision will Daniel make? What are you going to do? Does Daniel defile Do you cross this ruthless king who may um, punish you? You may lose your life, you know, or do you just fit in? Do you just make a few adjustments? Uh, Because it doesn't look like you're going home anytime soon, Daniel. Well, here's what happens in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. All right, so here he is. This is the first decision that he makes. I will not eat that food. I will not. I'm asking that you give me favor before the king. I will not defile myself. I won't give in to um, the emotion in the moment. Can you imagine the emotions? Like, uh, Do we have some emotional decision makers out there when it comes to food? Like, come on. Can you imagine the emotions in the, this moment? The fear, the insecurity, the vulnerability? And he could have been like, I'm just going to get some comfort from this cake or pour me, like pour me some of that wine, right? He could have. He could have minimized or made some excuses in this moment before the Lord. Like, it's just food, right? Like, God, it's just food. Like, did you really say? Did you really? He could have buckled under the pressure. There's an enormous amount of pressure on him to, you know, he's one of the best and the brightest. And he could have been like, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll do this because then I'll have a platform to serve God. Do we do that, right? Like, if I have power, if I have influence and power, if I just do this little thing, then I can serve God from this platform. Instead, He made this decision, I will not conform my values to the culture around me. I will stand up to this king. I will stand up to this pressure and live according to God's ways, according to the the truest thing about me in this moment of decision. So Daniel decides, doesn't defile. But how? How did he do this? Well, let's just dig in a tiny bit. Let's slow down around this verse 8 where it says, Daniel resolved, resolved not to eat the royal food and wine. All right, what does resolve mean? How many of you think instantly of like your spray and wash, right? Like instant picture in my head, a cleaner with a little trigger. Okay, but in the King James, it actually says that he purposed in his heart. Purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. It means that he determined, he appointed some truth to his heart that this actually, it may have made up his mind about the food, but it actually came about because he had already decided in his heart that he would honor God in this foreign land, that he would live set apart no matter the circumstances. This was done before the dinner bell. This was done in his heart. He had already hidden this priority and this, made this decision in his heart that he would follow God's ways wherever he was. I want to follow myself even here. 
So here's the main point that we need to pull from this first little bit of Daniel's story. Decisions have their root in your heart. Your mind follows your heart. So here's our first takeaway, our sticky phrase here. In order to make good decisions, the place to start is with your heart. The place to start is with your heart. Okay, awesome start, Daniel. Heroic example of living, that's amazing. But can he continue with these good intentions? Like, is this going to hold as you continue into this culture and this way of serving the king? Are you going to be able to make it for the long haul? Because when he's first taken from Jerusalem, he's about 15 or 16 years old, just a teenager. And um, and we want to see what happens down the road in this pressure cooker that he is living in. So what we're going to do is we are going to to switch, um, move forward, jump all the way to Daniel 6, Daniel chapter 6. And at this point in our story, Daniel is now 80 years old. Quick, man, 65 years later, right? Okay. Has the, the culture, again, worked its way into Daniel's life after all these years? Is he looking like more Jewish or more Babylonian after all this time? Does he weaken his resolve? Okay, so part two, chapter two, we're calling pray and you are pray. Pray and you are pray, okay. All right, so here we're moving from rare stakes to high stakes, okay? I know. There's more. It doesn't stop there. All right. Daniel chapter six. We're going to read a little more of this. And so, um, so here we go from the beginning. Um, Daniel is doing amazingly well. He is um, so exceptional and so wise. He's outclassing, outperforming all the other wise men that the king recognizes him and is moving him towards promotion. And, um, and here's what it says. Okay, um, so I'm going to start in verse 3. So now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Okay, so they realize there's no way to trap this guy. We got to go right for the heart here. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, oh, King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. All right, so here we are, this moment of decision. Again, like your life is on the line here, Daniel. What are you going to decide? It's now, again, not about the food you're going to eat, but the food you may become. What is Daniel going to decide? All right, here we go. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. 
Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So I want you to notice the first thing about this decision that he makes, this word now. This word now in, in verse, what verse is that? Um, verse 10, that's like an unreliable word right there. Look at the timing. How long does it take for him to wrestle through this, to decide? I mean, is he going to work through all the angles? Is he seeking counsel from friends? No, this is an instant decision. It is a now decision. He doesn't even flinch. He doesn't, he makes this look so easy to us observers here that, uh, again, he will not compromise. He will hold to the values that he had when he was 15 and had just walked out of Jerusalem. All these years later, he is standing firm in what he had decided. He makes it look so easy. He still has this conviction. He will not be moved off course. And so how? Again, we need more clues. So we have another clue in this chapter, and this is what it says. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. I want you to circle that before word. That is a key word, that this decision came out of a lifestyle that had been set up before. That he had the, the fruit of a root system that had worked its way so deep, that had been built day after day, moment after moment, as he had always done. He had some predetermined actions that happened morning, noon, and night. It was a pattern of bowing before God in prayer, in gratitude. It was a lifestyle that it was, this was not a momentary thing. So when the moment of decision came, when the moment of pressure came, that thing was already like locked and loaded into his life, right? It's amazing. So what is Daniel doing three times a day? Let's just dig a tiny bit deeper because there is a backstory, and this is so amazing. This is why I love the Word of God. So, one thing that Daniel's doing is he's turning his heart towards Jerusalem. Why is he turning his heart towards Jerusalem? Well, way back, um, back when Solomon is dedicating the temple to God in Jerusalem, that Solomon is dedicating this temple and um, he comes before the Lord in prayer as he's dedicating the temple and he turns to God, Solomon does, and he prays this. He prays, he says, God, listen, here's what happens. Um, he says, when the people, the Israelites, when they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they are taken and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon is asking God a big ask when this happens because when they turn against you and when, th when this happens, God, will you, will you turn and hear them from heaven? Will you turn? In the next chapter, God speaks and he answers Solomon's question and he says this in Chronicles 7. This is God 
answering Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. That is an amazing backstory because now, Daniel, this is the day he's living in. That all happened, right? Israel turned from God. They, they worshiped other gods. They did all the things that they weren't supposed to do. And they've now been taken captivity in a foreign land. But Daniel had these words. He had these promises. And he was standing firm on what God had said, that God would uphold his word. That if that Daniel turns, all he had to do was turn towards Jerusalem with prayer, seeking God, and that God would come through. And Daniel never stopped living that out. He had no other strategy. He had no other way. There was no plan B for him. So here's the bottom line for the second part. In order to make good decisions, be pre-prayered. <laughs> be pre-prayered. Say that. Be prepared. Prayered? Okay, however you want to say it, that's great. Okay, so why wasn't Daniel swayed in this terrifying moment? Again, in the emotions and, and the difficulty and the distraction. After all these years, he never conformed to the culture. We see it as an 80-year-old, as an 80-year-old living out the convictions and the truth that he had had since his youth, since when the, the worship in, in the temple was so fresh. It was still never once. It wasn't tainted. It wasn't watered down. It wasn't weakened. Don't we want this type of life, church. Don't we want it? He had these promises and he was standing firm on them. He prepared, pray, prayed himself in the presence of God over and over and over. He was just faithful to these small moments all during his day. Faithful, faithful, faithful to what God had said, that God's word on this matter was final. It was final, like period. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who's ruling outside of his window. It doesn't matter the chaos in the streets. It didn't matter who was elected. It didn't matter who his boss was. It didn't matter if he had followers. He was standing firm on God has said. God has the final word on this matter. And so he could stand from any place as long as he could just get his windows open and his heart pointed towards, towards Jerusalem where God said, sits enthroned above it all. God has said, God will come through. God's ears and his eyes and his heart are still attentive. No matter what I see happening out in the streets below my window, God is the source of my help. Where does it come from? The maker of heaven and earth. Period. Period. That's the end of the story. And he just would simply, three times a day, turn his heart to remind himself, I belong to the promise of God's kingdom. My allegiance is to another king and another kingdom, no matter where I live in exile, right? That's the bottom line for him. He consistently and regularly just exposed his heart and his mind to the ways of God's kingdom, to the promises that God had said over and over and over again, just telling his heart, this is the most important thing to me. 
This is the top of the, the agenda. This is the top of the story. This is the headline that I will come back to you over and over and over again. And devotion in his heart led to the value system that changed his mind, that ruled his mindset, right? Prayer before God, it was just woven into his lifestyle, guys. It was just the regular habit of his everyday life. So he was ready for his moment of decision. And that's what kept him from turning into just another Babylonian, you know, wise man. It kept him living as the true child of God after all these years. It kept oil in his lamp, didn't it? It kept him faithful, faithful, faithful to the promises of God. So here's this bottom line lesson from Daniel. To make good decisions for your life, the place to start is with your heart, and we're going to be pre prayered, okay? So here's the, the, the great news, guys. After some web-based research, I found Daniel's daring decision-making kit. Uh, imported from Babylon. Um, get yours today, 1999. And um, this is going to get us started with this life of making good decisions. And the first thing that we find in here is, is this watch. And this watch has an alarm. You just, it's just set three times a day. Morning, noon, and night. And it's just a little reminder. It goes off. You can just set yours. Do you have a watch? Do you have a, do you have a smartphone? Hold up your smartphone. Okay, good. You have them. Okay, so all you have to do is set a little alarm to ding three times a day. Maybe morning, noon, night. And what, I, what we're going to do is we're just going to develop this pattern in our lives of the presence of God. Regular times, remember, life is built by moments. That's what we see with Daniel here, that we're going to take our moments seriously and we're just going to start with this habit, right? We're just going to start with before, maybe before you get out of bed, just turning, just start with this moment of prayer, being prepared in God's presence. Maybe at lunch, maybe your coffee break, there's a moment in the middle of the day where you can just set that reminder like, okay, this, these are the little things that I'm going to build into my life to live according to heaven's ways. Uh, you know, maybe it's at, right at dinner, maybe it's before you turn on, Log into your Netflix, maybe before you shut everything down to go to sleep, just regular times in the presence of God. I mean, could you imagine not eating for a few days? Could you imagine not eating for a few days and then showing up for like a really big day at work, like a big presentation or uh, your strength training or um, babysitting the grandkids for the weekend and you haven't eaten in days? No, you'd have no strength for it, Right? We need to do the same things with our spiritual life. We need to do the same things with our minds, our, mostly our hearts, because that's what feeds our minds, right? So regular times, set your watch alarm, set your watch alarm, regular times in God's presence to just stop and pray. Okay, then the second thing in our kit is a compass. It's a compass. Now, we, um, we know what a compass does. It always points you towards home right? It always, no matter where you are, you're going to be able to find north. What's what we're going to do? We're going to have a compass on us at all times. So that's just going to point us back like, I am a citizen of heaven. This world feels really real, but it is all temporary and it is all passing away. And we're going to just all, all through the day, we're just going to keep reminding ourselves, actually, I am more eternal than I am temporal. Actually, what's actually most important is that the reality that 
heaven is moving towards me, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that we're turning our hearts towards God's throne. We're just taking our compass and aligning ourselves towards home where God sits enthroned over it all right? Okay, so we're going to get our, out of our kit, our compass, our compass. We're going to keep reminding ourselves, actually, I rely on the final word that God has spoken, that you said everything I need, that nothing will be impossible for you, that you will guide me through everything, that you will supply according to your riches. We're going to remind ourselves of the truth, just realign towards home with our compass, okay? And lastly, the last thing in our kit is an embosser. It is an embosser. You guys know what an embosser is? Why do you have an embosser, Molly? I don't know. But you just put a paper in there and you press it, press, 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 and now there's a K in my paper, this bumpy K, right? So it's like, a, it's like an imprinting thing. And what we're going to do is we're going to have an embosser and we're just going to let our heart be pressed into the ways of heaven. Where, God, you said that your ways are higher than our ways. Well, press them in. As I'm turning towards home, what I want is an exchange where heaven is pressed into my heart, where the desires of God are pressed into my heart, the priorities of God are pressed into my heart. They leave an imprint. As I expose my heart to, to heaven, it leaves an imprint into my heart where I have different marching orders and I have a different value system than this world. And I have, I have a sense that, you know what, I, I, I know, I know that eternity is coming towards me. I'm going to imprint my heart with the ways of God, the love of God, the affection of God, the devotion of God. Okay, so here we go. We have our toolkit. We're going to set our alarm. We're going to align ourselves, our compass, point ourselves towards home, and we're going to let our heart be imprinted by heaven, by the glory of God. We're going to keep that thing really, really fresh. Okay, last little story. Kevin and I went to Boston um, uh, in May as part of our sabbatical, and um, while we were there in the city, there is this really, really old cemetery in the middle of downtown. It was actually established in 1660, and uh, Paul Revere is buried there, and John Hancock. Well, we would walk around, and um, Kevin would take pictures and videos of the tombstones, and um, can you see what that says? No, I can't either. No, no. It's too old. And what's happened is at one point there was a fresh, you know, fresh something on that that told who was there and something about their life. And what happened over time is weather washes that thing away, right? It washes away the marks and, and just the time it wears that thing out. Well, that's what happens with our hearts. So we need a fresh imprint. We need the fresh chiseling of the Father's heart and his voice on our hearts so that that thing stays so crystal clear, guys, so that our resolve is so strong because we want the promotion of Daniel. He lived an amazing life. We want to know what it's like to be rescued from a lion's den, don't we? We want to know what it's like to walk in the wisdom of God, to solve the riddles and mysteries that our culture and our schools and our neighbors are just dumbfounded by. Daniel had the answers because of the spirit of God on him. We want that. We want that. But are we willing to do the small, faithful work of a hero's life? Are we willing to do it? Because sometimes I think we want the benefits without the bowing. And we want the awesome without the adoration. And we want the wonderful without the worship. And there is no other way. There's no other way. So we're going to do what Daniel did. We're going to live the hero's life by these small moments. 
because doing the work of a hero's life, it allowed Daniel to stand up to this tyrant king. It allowed him to sleep peacefully with the lions. What will it do in your life? What could it do in your life?